Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. Grab your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter one. Matthew chapter one is where we'll be this morning. We're gonna finish up the genealogy of Jesus today. And then we'll continue through Matthew for the next few weeks as we continue to make our way towards the birth of Jesus as we study that together. And so we're in the third section of this genealogy at the end of, uh, at the end of it here in Matthew. We're gonna start in verse 12. Remember, um, Advent means arrival. It's a Latin term meaning arrival. And so for us on this side of Christmas, We celebrate, we look back and we celebrate the first coming of Jesus. We celebrate that God came to us, Emmanuel. He moved into our neighborhood, put on flesh and blood and moved into our neighborhood. But we also, as Christians, we long for the return of Christ. We believe that he is coming again to set all things right, to make all things new. And so while we look back and see that he has come, we believe that because he has come, he will come again. And so we long for that day as well. So let's pick up in Matthew uh, chapter one. I'm gonna read through these verses and I want you to know if you don't recognize any of the names, that's okay. Because most of these names are only mentioned here. They are not mentioned anywhere else in scripture. And we don't have a whole lot of information on them, but that's part of the point. And on the screen right now are more verses in scripture we're gonna cover today. Uh, So if you wanna take a picture of that or write these notes down, I just want you to see that I'm not making it up. This is in scripture. And we're gonna study kind of a theme throughout scripture this morning. Matthew chapter one, verse 12. After the deportation to Babylon. Deportation, just a polite way of saying exile or captivity. We'll talk more about that here in a bit. Jeconiah was the father of Jealtiel. Jealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel might be the only name you, meant, you recognize. It's mentioned five times in the Old Testament. Um, he's appointed as governor over Judah. We'll talk more about that. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud. Eliud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Then verse 17, Matthew tells us what he just did. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, exile, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon, to the Christ, 14 generations. So what Matthew has done is he's divided this into three different groups, three groups of 14. And three groups of 14, for you math majors, make six groups of seven. Everybody understand that? Do I need a whiteboard? Are we good? Three groups of 14 is actually six groups of seven. And then when you get to the next group, the final group of seven begins with Jesus, which means that Jesus is the seventh seven. So for Jews reading this, numbers matter a ton. What Matthew is saying is he is the promised one. It's him. Seven meaning completion or perfection. All the generations have led to this, to this seventh, seventh, which is Jesus. So this morning, though, we're going to talk about this portion of the genealogy through the exile of Babylon. So let me give us some context. Again, we don't recognize any of these names. And part of that is on purpose. Part of that's because it's not in the Old Testament. So a few things to remember about genealogies. Matthew is a Jewish author writing a Jewish book to Jewish people about a Jewish Messiah. His whole point is to convince the Jews that Jesus is who they've heard about from their prophets. 
And so what he's doing right away from the, sh- from the get-go, at the beginning of the book of Matthew, is to say he is a descendant of Abraham. His father is Abraham, just like yours. And then to say he's from the kingly line of David, because that was a prophecy. The problem was the Jews really had a hard time tracing the kingly line of David. Because after Jeconiah, it was prophesied to Jeconiah, there would be no more sons for him. He would no longer be called the son of kings. And so the line, the Davidic line was almost taken from Jeconiah. Around the same time, Rehoboam um, becomes king of Israel. And Rehoboam is not a great king. And during his reign, the kingdom of Israel splits into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, which is why it gets confusing towards the end of the Old Testament. The northern kingdom keeps the name of Israel. So they are Israel. They have 10 of the 12 tribes in the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom would now be called Judah. And it would be comprised of the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. The prophecy was that the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah. And so while the, the northern kingdom gets taken into captivity, the southern kingdom, Judah, also gets taken into captivity. It's called exile uh, by Babylon. Babylon comes in, uh, takes them out, and takes them to Babylon. Over time, uh, Persia then overtakes Babylon, and then Persia, the king of Persia, says, hey, I'm gonna allow you to go back into Judah, back into Jerusalem, the capital city, and I'm gonna allow you to go back there and rebuild the temple. And so this is where we pick up here. They're on their way back in to rebuild the temple. Zerubbabel uh, is one of the first ones to help lead uh, this rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. But because of that, there are no more kings. There's just governors. Babylon's in charge. Persia is in charge. Rome would become in charge. And they don't appoint kings because they have kings. They have Caesars. They have kings. So they appoint governors uh, to control that area. And what we've read here in the end of Matthew, they're not kings. In fact, they're probably governors of that southern kingdom of Judah. And so while the Old Testament focuses primarily on the northern kingdom of Israel, this is focusing on Judah because Matthew is making the point that even in the darkness of exile, even in the darkness of civil war, even in the darkness of no kings, God is working a plan to bring forth the Messiah. So that's what we're reading here in Matthew chapter uh, 1. Before we get into it, I want to first establish some ground rules. I'm going to talk about worldviews for a second. Now, a worldview is a way that you view the world. I know that's creative, uh, but I'm gifted in that way, and so that's what I have for you. A worldview is the way in which you view the world. And um, we all have different worldviews, and they often begin externally. We're told how to view the world, or we pick up how to view the world by how we're raised or the culture that we live in. And then over time, though, that culture makes its way into us. And so a worldview actually becomes our identity, the way that we view things. And a way that we know that, I think most predominantly in the South, is during college football season. Depending on the team that you root for and the team that you pretend you went to school at, that school, uh, you, that shapes how you see the world. So right now, you Georgia fans, the world is great, is it not? It's a good world for you. you're barking, which to me tells me things are good. That's how I know. When bulldogs start barking, things are good. And so you think things are good right now. I'm a Florida Gator fan, so things are, I don't know, they're mediocre right there. I don't know, they're six and six. That's what they are for me. Um, uh, Vanderbilt fans, you you, you feel better about this year than you have in many years in the past, right? So just that worldview changes. But what happens over time is the external worldview 
becomes an internal identity. And here's how you know when you've crossed over into the worldview becoming your identity. When you start saying things like we and us when talking about 18 to 22 year old football players, you've never, you never set your feet on the field. You've never sat through a meeting. You've never gone through a practice. And yet we won the national championship, right? Did you not? We won it. Uh, we are the best team in the nation. We sent a quarterback to the Heisman Award ceremony. We, we, we. But when you lose, it's, man, those guys are awful. <laughs> it's they, it's the defensive coordinator, it's he, it's all of that. And you begin, your whole life changes because of the way an 18-year-old plays football and you can't handle it anymore, right? But that identity, what was a worldview, the way that you see the world, and in fact, the way apparently that you communicate through barking changes, that that's your worldview, but then it, it impacts you now. It gets internally in you. So that's one way. Um, mothers in the room, you know this completely, right? Because you saw the world one way and then you became a mama and you see the world completely differently now. And now everything is a threat to your kids, everything. Uh, butter is a threat to your children. And you see the world that way in such a way now that you are not just the mother of your children, you're the mother of every child that ever comes across you. You are the mother of everyone, right? It, it becomes part of who we are. So exile is a biblical theme, but for Jews, it was a way they viewed the world. If you look through the Old Testament, they were constantly in exile. They were in Egypt. They were in exile in the wilderness. They were in exile again now in Babylon and then Persia, Assyria. It's always been exile. When Jesus is born, they are under Roman occupation. They are in exile. And we're gonna define exile as a way that you feel like you're not at home. So what's happened for the Jews is they've been taken out of Jerusalem. The temple has been destroyed. I mean, completely destroyed that Solomon had built. They're taken out and they're allowed to go back in. But while they're out in Babylon, they are around people who are not like them, who don't sing the same songs, say the same things. They don't wear the same things. They don't worship the same God. Nothing is familiar to them. It is completely homeless. Then they're allowed to go back into Jerusalem and they try to rebuild the temple, but they're recognizing it's not quite like it was at first. Something is off here. It's the way you felt when you went away to college and then you came back home and it's supposed to feel like home, but now it doesn't anymore, but college doesn't feel like home yet. So you don't really quite know where you land. That's, that's what exile is. I, you just don't quite know where you fit, what home is for you. And so these people, they have lived lives of exile. And in fact, there's a rabbi a few hundred years ago who wrote a poem. And the first line of the poem is, what am I without exile? The identity of the Jews had gotten so steeped in exile that if you were to take away the exile from them, if you were to give them a home, they really wouldn't know what to do with it because their identity was so rooted as people of exile. Well, because of that, what seeped in is um, a way of thinking, a worldview called Zionism. The idea is that um, Zion, another name for Jerusalem or the holy city, Zionism for a Jew was the idea that if we can just get back to Zion, if we can just get back to Jerusalem, if we can just get the temple rebuilt, if we can just have that back, then everything will be fine. And over the course of the last uh, couple thousands of years, that has escalated even more to where um, the Jewish people, they're unique in that they are both a nationality and a religion. It's interesting the way that they, that they view themselves. And so they're trying to get back to Jerusalem. They want Israel back. 
In the same way that the Chinese have China and the Japanese have Japan, the Americans have America, the Jews view Israel as their home. So their view of Zionism is when I get back there, everything will be fine. I just got to get to Zion. Let me get to Zion and things will be fine. Well, in the meantime, there's really two ways to handle exile. The first is rebellion, right? When you're in exile, when you're taken into captivity, the first thing you can do is rebel. And so you, uh, you create armies and militias and you rebel. It's, it's how we fight against whatever is oppressing us. The second way of handling exile is to compromise. It's to start to see things as, oh, it's not that bad. I could see some truth there. And so we begin to compromise a bit, rebellion or compromise. My argument this morning is that the Bible gives us a third way to handle exile, and it's neither one of those, and yet it is both of those. So I wanna show us what I mean by that. Jeremiah chapter 29, you know this because you had somebody graduate high school and they, you read this to them. Jeremiah chapter 29, Jeremiah is a prophet around this same time of the exile. He's one of the first ones to prophesy about what's about to happen. And he is prophesying to the people of God And he's the kind of guy who's just gonna tell you how it is, right? Like he's not gonna sugarcoat things. He's gonna tell you how it is. And because of that being his ministry, he actually never saw anyone come to faith. He's known as the weeping prophet. But in Jeremiah 29, we all know verse 11, most of us do. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a future and a hope. That's that's the verse that we love. We love that verse. But the context of it is a bit different. This past week, I got to go on a field trip with Kaysen, our middle son, and um, we are um, at Rock Eagle. So for the second half of the day, we just get to see all these like reptiles and amphibians and the kids are loving it. They're loving what's happening. And so the girl goes out and she brings back in a snake. It's a corn snake, which apparently is a good snake because there apparently are such things as good snakes. So she brings the snake in and one of the kids says, will that bite me? Right. And the response in my head is, no, you're fine. It won't bite you. And the girl says, she says, anything with a mouth can bite you. And I look at the fourth graders next to me like, she's not lying. She is absolutely right. They could bite me. But then she went on to say, but there's a way to handle this snake so that the chances are it will not bite you. And I just, I sat there thinking, I love the honesty of it. Like it's not false. She's not lying. No, no, this thing could bite you. We have to treat it with respect, treat it the way it needs to be treated. So Jeremiah is like that. So I wanna put all of uh, verse 11 in context for us. So Jeremiah chapter 29, let's begin in verse four. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So let me just give us a worldview of exile. It's gonna really bother you first. And here's the first thing. I want you to read verse four again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile. Who sent the Israelites into exile? God did. Our first view of exile for following Jesus is that God's the one who sends us into exile. It's God. And that's gonna change everything. That shifts everything for us. So that's how he begins it. I have sent you into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And now he's gonna tell them how to handle the exile. If I'm the one in charge of exile, here's how I want you to handle it. God says in verse five, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. What he's saying is, I want you to dwell in exile. Build houses, but don't leave them, live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Now I know in the world that we live in, 
uh, we have almost lost the idea of what it takes to actually grow food. We think you grow food by staying in line for 10 minutes. That's how long it takes to grow chicken. That's how long it takes. But the idea here is I want you to plant the gardens and then wait long enough to harvest it and then eat it. So he's not saying, hey, you're gonna get out quickly. Just he's laying, laying some groundwork. Verse five or verse six, take wives, have sons and daughters, which also takes some time. Uh, take wives for your sons and give your daughters a marriage. Don't just have children. Now have generations after you. Have those babies and then have them get married that they may bear sons and daughters. They may have, even, they may have grandchildren. Multiply there, he says, and do not decrease. Verse seven, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Seek the welfare of the people who have captured me. Yeah. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Verse eight, for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. It feels like strong words. And what Jeremiah is saying of the context is there have been people who have now um, stepped into this, the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, and they're proclaiming to the people, it's not gonna be that long. It's not that bad. It's gonna be fine. Listen, just give it a week and then you'll be back home. The prophets and diviners are coming in saying, listen, God loves you. So he won't leave you out here. He's gonna take you back home and get you that Lamborghini. It's gonna be fine. He's gonna get you back there. And Jeremiah is speaking on behalf of God and God is saying, I didn't send those people. That is not my message. It's not my message. My message is not this is gonna be painless. My message is not that you're gonna be um, Prosperous. That's not what I'm saying. In fact, he continues in verse 10 and he says, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. Now I want you to put yourself in the shoes of these people and you hear the prophet say on behalf of God, God says it's gonna be 70 years. Probably shouldn't do this, but how many of you are over the age of 70? Anybody over the age of 70 in here? It's a long time ago, was it not? Things have changed a lot in 70 years, have they not? I'm in my mid-40s and things have changed a lot in that time. 70 years is a long time. For some of us who are over 70, like, yeah, it was a long time, but it's not that long. Some of us who are younger are like, no, it's a really long time. You're old. You guys are, you're really old. And I can't believe you're still alive after 70 years. That's what some of us are thinking here today. But that's a long time. And so God's word to the people is, listen, it's gonna be 70 years. So here's what I need you to do. I need you to build houses and live in them. I want you to plant gardens and eat from that produce. I want you to get married. I want you to have babies. I want those babies to have babies and they get married. This is, it's gonna be a while. So the worldview for us, if we believe that God is who he says he is, is this is our view of exile. But we've been sold a bill of goods when it comes to God. We've been told lies about God, like, like God would never lead you into suffering, like God would uh, never allow you to suffer. That's a lie from the enemy. That's a lie. And any good parent knows why that's a lie. Because to keep our kids from suffering, to keep our kids from pain, is to raise a bunch of spoiled brats who can't lead anything. And God knows the same thing. And so God is speaking to you saying, listen, here's how exile works. I'm in charge of the exile. 
I know you think it's Babylon, it's me. I'm in charge of your exile. I'm in charge of where you feel lonely. I'm in charge of where you feel like you don't belong. I'm in charge of your suffering. I'm in charge of it. And I'm also gonna tell you this. It might be a while. It might just be a while. 70 years even. But then he says this. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill my promise or fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Listen, it's 70 years, but my promise is I'm coming to you. That's my promise. Then verse 11, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. But as long as we have the worldview of victims in exile, we'll never understand the context of Jeremiah 29, 11, where God is saying, I have sent you here. It's gonna be 70 years and I know what I'm doing. And it's for your good. It's for your welfare. So this May, when you wanna write Jeremiah 29, 11 to a, college, to a graduate of high school, to tell them about how good God is, I hope you understand the context of what you're saying. What you're saying to them is he knows the plans he has for you. And there are coming years where it might feel like exile. Don't lose hope. This is what God is saying. But I'm coming to give you a future and a hope. Verse 12. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will be found by you in exile. That's the promise. The promise is not deliverance. The promise is you'll find me there. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes. I'm not gonna leave you there forever. I'll gather you from all the nations, all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So to have a godly view, a godly worldview, I'm trying to help us here this morning is that I want you to know you will face suffering and you will face pain and you'll face frustration and disappointment and you'll face sickness and death. You'll face all of it. And the promise from God is not that he keeps us from it, but that he's with us in it. That's the promise. And so the view of exile, I wanna help us again so you understand that you just don't have this cotton candy view of who God is. So then when you face hard times, you think God's given up on you. No, he has not. In fact, in the exiles where you find him, you'll find him there. There are people in the room today who are walking through immense amount of grief and they would argue you and they would say to you, no, 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 I have found God here. This is where God has been to me. And this is the promise he's making. This is the view of exile. But the Jews didn't quite get there with this view of exile. They really struggled with it. And in fact, it became their identity. They are an exilic, an exile people. This is who they are. To this day, they view themselves as exile. They're waiting for Zion instead of being who God has called them to be in the present today. Well, Psalm 137 is a psalm from this time period. And I wanna point out the way that they were handling exile because of their worldview and their view of God. Psalm 137, verse one. By the waters of Babylon... We sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. So the psalmist begins with, you remember? We sat by the waters of Babylon and we wept remembering Jerusalem, remembering Zion, remembering our holy city. Then look at this in verse two. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres or harps. This is how bad it had gotten for the people of Israel. They just stopped singing and they stopped playing music. 
Now, for some of you, that sounds awful. For some of you, you don't quite understand that. Well, the people of Israel were known for their songs. And they were known for their songs about Zion, about Jerusalem. They were known for their songs about this place of who, where God lives and dwells and resides with them. They're known for it. So it continues in verse three. For there in Babylon, our captors required songs, required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. The Babylonians knew that they loved to sing. Hey, sing us one of those songs again. Some say they liked it musically. Some said it was all mockery. But at this point, the Israelites can't do it anymore. Then they say this in verse four. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? I'm hanging up my harp. I can't sing about God in exile. This is where the Israelites had gotten. And if we're gonna be honest, we felt that way, have we not? In the pain that we're in and the suffering that we're in, the consequences of the fall, wherever we are, Maybe you've reached a point where you're like, I don't, what's the point? Why? I don't even need to sing. I can't. There's nothing for me to sing about. And the Israelites hung up their harps and said, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Well, this idea of singing is closely connected to joy throughout scripture. And I know you men say you don't like to sing, but I would argue with you because you sing at college football games. You sing when Leonard Skinner comes on your radio. You sing. And there's something about singing that just brings joy to our hearts. It, it literally does. It's what happens for us. Well, in Revelation chapter six, uh, the Apostle John is exiled on the island of Patmos and he's all by himself and he's awaiting basically his execution. And while he's there, God gives him a revelation. There's no S on the end, by the way, just like there's no Kroger's and Walmart's. <laughs> revelation, it's one revelation that John has. And there's these series of visions that he has that open his eyes to what's happening. 95, 96 AD is around the time this is happening and things for the Christians in the world are terrible. I mean, just awful. Nero's in charge. Uh, Christians are being burnt at the stake to light the parties. It's just, it's really, really bad. The leaders of the early Christian church have all been executed in front of the Christians. It's awful what's happening. And so John has this vision. And in this vision he sees a scroll. And the vision of the scroll is that no one can seem to figure out how to open the scroll. Whatever this is, this history of humanity, no one knows how to open it. And the question is, who can open the scroll? Who is worthy to open the scroll? And John weeps because there's no one to be found. And then someone speaks and says, no, 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 we found him. A lion from the tribe of Judah, the lamb of God. And it's Jesus who can open the scroll. The next thing that happens is then you see this scroll being opened, but there's seven seals on it. Not like seals, seals, but seals uh, that you would seal something. And so the seals are holding this scroll together. No one can open this. One guy can open it. This Jesus can open it. And so the first four seals are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. You wrestling fans, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, the four, four horsemen. But uh, in apocalyptic literature, they are representative of something. And so the first horse represents heresy. It's a white horse who is supposed to look like Jesus, but is speaking false prophecies. The second horse is representative of war, wars and rumors of war. The third horse uh, represents famine. 
just intense famine in the land. And the fourth horse just represents death. And so this evil is coming from the skies and John sees it as the scroll is being opened. The fifth seal is representative of persecution, the people of God being murdered for their faith. And the sixth seal is the seal that represents natural calamity, earthquakes and tornadoes and fires and hurricanes. All of that is happening. So what John is seeing is just intense evil. I mean, pain beyond compare, darkness beyond darkness. And in Revelation chapter six, we pick up and we begin to understand what John is seeing. Revelation six, verse 14, the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. And the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, saying, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And then here's the question, who can stand? So John has this vision And he sees all this evil coming towards him and towards the earth. And the people that you would look to, to lead us through pain, to lead us through exile, to lead us through suffering and evil and darkness, the kings and the rulers are hiding in the rocks. They're shaking. The rich and the wealthy and the powerful are all hiding in the caves. Even the poor are hiding in the caves, the slave and the free, everyone is hiding in the caves. So the question begs to be asked, well, who's gonna make it? With all this evil in the world, heresy and death and war and famine and persecution and calamity, who can stand? In Revelation chapter seven, John hears something and he hears the voice of someone declaring 144,000, which is a very Jewish way of saying a whole heck of a lot of people. And in Revelation chapter seven, verse nine, John hears 144,000, then he sees this in verse nine. After this, I looked... And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all the tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Now, what you're reading is a summary of the the prophecy to Abraham, every tribe, tongue, and nation. And then you're seeing the picture of that Palm Sunday when those who believed in Jesus laid down their palm branches as a means of worship. Who does John see? The question, who can stand? Who does John see? John sees the church. That's who he sees standing. In the midst of exile and persecution and darkness, in the midst of natural calamity and war, in the midst of chaos, the question, who can stand? John sees the church, the Christians. That's who can stand. Verse 10, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. We just sang about this. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, or singing, amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. So the question of exile, the worldview of exile, the world tries to tell you it's painful or it'll be over quickly or this is God's way of getting back at you. And the godly worldview of exile is God is good and he is for you and he has sent the exile. And it might be a while, but when you're in it, who stands? The Christian stands. Who makes it an exile? Those who declare Jesus is Lord. That's who makes it through the exile. 
That's who rejoices. That's where we find joy in the exile. And what are they doing? They're gathered around the throne and they are singing. They're worshiping. And that might mess with you. Because when you've experienced exile, you've experienced loneliness, feeling like you don't belong here. When you've experienced the skies being open and evil descending upon you. And it always feels like it's not just one thing, right? It feels like it's one thing after another, after another in your life. And so there's financial pain, which then turns into relational pain, which then turns into betrayal, which then turns into uncertainty and fear and frustration. We're seeing all of it happen. And the book of Revelation, the revelation, the vision is that church, you're gonna be okay. That this exile will not destroy you. In fact, you will find yourself singing and worshiping at the feet of God. A pastor and theologian, Eugene Peterson, speaks on this very passage. And he says, these people are not only secure, they are exuberant. This is a curious but wholly biblical phenomenon. The most frightening representations of evil, which we just saw in Revelation 6, are set alongside extravagant praise, which we just saw in Revelation 7. Christians sing. They sing in the desert. They sing at night. They sing in the storms. Oh, how they sing. The songs of vision are the response to the statistics of evil. Any evil, no matter how fearsome, is exposed as weak and pedantic. Pedantic meaning shallow or empty before such songs. Eugene Peterson is saying, nothing stands a chance against the joy of the church. Nothing. And when we are being attacked in exile, when we feel like there's no light at the end of the tunnel and we stand and we sing in the face of adversity and we sing in the face of evil and we sing in the face of Babylon, what's happening is that we are expressing joy, unspeakable joy. And what we're declaring is that our worldview of exile is not that God sent it to condemn us, but that God sent it uh, to train us. And we're gonna praise God for who he is in the midst of it. So when we think about joy, this is what's happening. Joy is not circumstantial. Joy is rooted in something deeper than that. So if we're gonna have a worldview, if we're gonna have a view of God and a view of exile that allows us to sing in the midst of evil, to sing in the midst of exile, not to rebel, not to compromise, then we need to have the right view of exile and the right view of God. So if you would turn to Romans chapter eight, it'll be on the screen. It's a fantastic chapter. I just have the time to highlight a few things, but I wanna reorient our hearts and our minds around who God is. Give us a true biblical worldview. Romans chapter eight, verse one. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Here's the first rule of biblical exile. It is not condemnation. And I need you to hear that from me today. Whatever pain you are walking in, whatever suffering and loneliness you're walking in, it is not condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Is it discipline? Maybe. But it's not condemning. It doesn't condemn you to hell. It doesn't condemn you to darkness. What happens for those of us who kind of wrestle with shame is that anytime things get dark, we think it's our fault. Jeremiah 29, verse four, I have sent you into exile. Romans chapter eight, verse one, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. First rule of exile is that it's not condemnation. 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And the law of sin and death is a condemnation? Absolutely. But in the law of the spirit of life, it is not. You've been set free. So first, exile is not condemnation. Let's go down to verse 12 of Romans chapter eight. So then brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Here's the second rule of biblical exile is that God is your father. And he's a good father who only gives good gifts. And so while your exile, exile is not condemnation, it might actually be a gift. If God is good, if he is that, who he says that he is, then whatever he's allowed to get through his hands to you must be good for you. It must be. He is your father. And then verse 16, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if he is father, then you are son or daughter. And I don't know what kind of home you were raised in, but God is a better father than that. He's good and he's perfect. And if we are his children, verse 17, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Another rule of a biblical view of exile, that the exile is necessary for inheritance. It's necessary. We see it here in Matthew chapter one. The exile is how God got the line back to the Davidic line. It's how God did it. So whatever exile you're in, it's what God is doing. Romans 8, 28 and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. If you are in Christ Jesus and you are his son, all things are working together for good. Exile, yes, exile. Cancer, yes, cancer. Divorce, yes, divorce. Pain, yes, pain, yes. Prison, yes. Drug addiction, yes. All of it is being worked together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Romans eight thirty five. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written? For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present or things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Another rule of biblical exile is that it does not separate us from the love of God. In fact, it draws us deeper into the love of God. And so maybe today you find yourself in exile and you're finding it really hard to sing. You wanna hang up your harp. I'm telling you, you've got the wrong view because you've got the wrong view of God and you see God as a genie or a vending machine. He's not, he's a good father. And good fathers know there are seasons in which their children need to suffer, that they might grow, they might find more about who he is. And it never separates God or your, the love of God from you, never. Nothing does, nothing does. First Peter chapter one, Peter is writing to the church in persecution and he calls them elect exiles, which is an interesting phrase 
Because to be in exile means that you've been cast out, but to be elect means that you've been chosen. And so he puts these two things together as if to say, yeah, yeah, you're exiles, but you need to know you've been chosen for this exile. So I don't know where you find yourself today, but I think Peter would say the same thing to you and to me. He would call us elect exiles. So then what do we do? What do we do? Philippians chapter four, Paul tells us what to do. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. That word always in the, in the Greek is interesting. It has, it's translated always. <laughs> like not when things are good, not when you've got money in the bank, always, at all times, in all ways. When do we rejoice? When do we um, express our joy? Always. In happiness and in a smile? No, but always. And I will say again, rejoice, as if we need to hear it again. Rejoice. And then here's the expression as Mallory comes up. It says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. What that means is, let your sanity be known to everyone. While the world is going crazy because the skies have opened and the horsemen have descended and evil is on the earth, when that is happening, what he says is, would you please just be reasonable? Be sane about this. Have the right view of God. He is great and can do what he wants, when he wants, how he wants to. But also he is good and he is for you and he loves you. Why do we rejoice at all times? Because we have a reasonable view of the world that begins with the proper view of who God is. And the last phrase is crucial. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Why? Because the Lord is at hand. He is near. Not because the end is coming, not because Zion is almost rebuilt, but because he is with you. You know what makes us home? It's not a building, it's not a city. It's a person that makes us feel at home. Jesus has come like he promised he would. And he is near, which means in him we are no longer exiles. We are sons and we are daughters. Sing a Christmas carol. There's two words in it. I think we just sing right past sometimes, but it's rejoice. Let me say it again, rejoice. And the next word is Emmanuel. Do you know what we're saying? What we're saying is rejoice, be joyful, be joyful. God is with us. So I don't know where you find yourself today. Whether you're in exile, you're heading into exile, you're coming out of it, but there's exile for all of us. And the promise of exile is not that it will be short and not that it will be painless. The promise of exile is that God is with us. That's the promise. And that what you see as a problem, God sees as a promise and he's developing his line to bring forth Jesus in it. So for some of us today, here's my encouragement to you. Get down your harp. Like you've been a victim long enough. And your view of exile has led you to feel like God is out to get you. And I'm here to tell you that is not the character of God in the Bible. Never has been, never will be. He's out to be with you. 
And so while you may feel like, how can I sing the Lord's songs when I'm going through cancer? How can I sing the Lord's songs when my marriage is falling apart? How can I sing the Lord's song when I'm losing a child? How can I sing the Lord's song when I just lost my job? How do you sing the Lord's song? He is with you. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel. Let's get down our harps and find joy in exile. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Mallory plays, I don't know where you find yourself today. But through being on staff and knowing some stories and walking through some stuff with people even the past week, I know there are a number of us who feel like we're in exile. We don't feel like we're in Jerusalem. We don't feel like we're home. We feel like we're just wandering around. We feel like God's really let us down. He's really disappointed us. And that worldview has become your identity. And so you've decided just to suck it up and make it through. Well, God would challenge you on that. And he would say, no, no, don't just make it through. I want you to build houses. I want you to plant gardens. I need you to get down your harps and sing again. This is the beauty of Christmas. He said, when the world was at its darkest, Jesus came. Because while the world was at its darkest, God was preparing. He's preparing religious systems. He's preparing roadways. He was preparing hearts of people. So in Galatians chapter four, Paul would say that at the perfect time, at the fullness of time, God sent his son. So whatever exile you're in today, he's with you. And there is coming a day where he'll take you back home. But for today, Get down your harps and rejoice. Maybe today your worldview has led you away from the Lord. Maybe you grew up in church and you were taught a pretty jacked up view of who God is. And things got hard and didn't match the God that you had been taught about. Well, this God is better than that shallow cotton candy version. This God has substance to him and he loves you and he's with you and he's drawing you back to him even in the midst of exile today. Father, we love you. We're doing the best we can to. But God, the wrestle against um, unhealthy, unbiblical worldviews is real and it's hard. So Father, I pray that you would draw us back to the truth of scripture. That if you are for us, who can be against us? And if you've sent us into exile, because you've got a plans to prosper us and not to harm us, to give us a future and a hope. And if it takes 70 years, it doesn't change the fact that it's your plans for us to give us a future and a hope. So God, root us in that truth today. Maybe we need it because we're in exile. Maybe we'll need it in 10 years because we'll face an exile. But God, I pray you would root us in it today. That we would rejoice because you are with us. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.